welcome to the Infinite Global Podcast. Today, we are focusing on the ongoing PR and perceptions problem in the pensions sector. This episode follows the publication of our latest report, produced in partnership with YouGov, examining public attitudes towards pensions. I'm delighted to be joined today by Rennie Biggins, Head of Retirement at the Investing and Saving Alliance, to talk through some of our findings and to get his perspective on what can be done to solve the pensions perception puzzle. So, welcome Rennie. Now let's start by outlining the problem. And our research shows that 55% of Brits do not look for pensions information at all from any source, which I think shows the scale of the problem that we're facing here. But where does this trusted engagement issue stem from, do you think? Good afternoon, Matt. There's a number of areas I think you could consider here which would be contributing factors to this whole engagement and trust issue that we've been seeing in pensions for a long period of time now. I think if we have a quick recap of pension stories, perhaps, we've heard in the media over history in recent years and decades, which obviously has a part to play in contributing to people's perceptions of pensions. You had the Robert Maxwell scandal, of course, the pension fund abuse there, which emerged back in the um, early 1990s, and the British Steel debacle as well. So, you know, all of these events that have been high profile events that have been reported in the media certainly don't do anything to uh, instill any confidence for people to have it in the UK pension system. Can you actually recall the last time there was any good news about pensions? You could probably say, OK, if there isn't any news at all about pensions, it's probably doing its job. I wouldn't expect to see stories in the paper about someone's had a good outcome with a pension. They've just come to retire. They got more money than they thought they were going to get. That's not really newsworthy. So you've got that side of things that contribute to it. There's a number of other factors, though, of course, the complexity of pensions legislation being a big barrier to engagement. Attempts have previously been made to simplify it, and we had A-Day back in 2006. But the complexity is increasing ever more. And that includes recent Treasury proposals as well around increasing the normal minimum pension age from 55 to 57. And here, you know, we've had well-intentioned proposals to protect the pension right at age 55 for some individuals. But if it's implemented as proposed, it's going to lead to sort of a significant amount of complexity. And that translates into schemes having to try and communicate that in an easy way to their consumers and membership base, which isn't easy. And we've also seen a raft of protection brought in in recent years as the actual taxable benefits of pensions have been brought down with a reduction in the lifetime allowance and the annual allowance. So that, again, you know, it just adds to the complexity. And, and if people are starting to think, I want to learn a bit more about pensions, they sometimes get put off because they're thinking, well, it's just going to change again in the next year. So what's the point of, of trying in the first place? And people generally just don't understand about investing money either. I think they get very nervous if they know that there's a chance that their pension fund might reduce in value. They want to have their money in a place where they can see it's safe. It's not going to reduce. That translates into putting it into a cash account where, you know, it's safe in terms of it's not going to drop. But in real terms, it probably will because interest rates are very low and obviously inflation is going to eat away at that. And the long term benefits of investing over the medium to longer term shows that that far outweighs the dangers of investing. Um, but people just aren't aware of that. So education is, is really key there as well. 
you've covered a lot of ground there, Rennie. I think, again, that shows just how many complex and overlapping and interweaving issues are at play here. If we go back to the role of the media, which you touched on, I mean, you mentioned quite a timeline there of scandals over the years. And it has to say that pensions has been plagued by some less than glamorous or inspiring stories over the years. But what role does the media have? Is there a bit more of a balance that can be struck between the fear-mongering and inspiring? I know negative stories are always going to attract attention. Anything that's counterintuitive or covers disaster or failure in some form is always going to be newsworthy. But is there a role for the media to play here in, in changing that narrative at all? It's a good question. I would sort of struggle somewhat to what the media can do to actually improve engagement in pensions because what sort of information is going to be put out there. We've had the campaigns for automatic enrolment. Am I auto-enrolled? Are you auto-enrolled? Is your employer doing the right thing? So we have things around generating an awareness of what auto-enrolment is. But in terms of actually trying to engage people to think about putting more into their pensions, I'm struggling to see how you could actually convey something like that in the media without it potentially being construed perhaps as advice. What, what I would say there's a real lack of within pensions is there's not an effective support framework for people to actually access to be able to make informed decisions. So I'm not necessarily thinking some of this needs to come from the media, but there are other areas in which that has their part to play in terms of helping support individuals with their decisions. We have, of course, at the moment, the Money and Pension Service that does a, a fantastic job for supporting those people with pension-wise who are aged 50 or over. But we really need to see some sort of support framework in place for people who are younger, who are just starting out on their savings journey. And that's where perhaps you would consider the employer perhaps playing a bigger part or, or in fact, providers as well being able to play a bigger part as well. But there is some regulatory restrictions that mean they, they can't actually provide the levels of guidance and support that they would like for their members. So I see that those areas being more important to help with engagement than media generally itself. So if we look to those other actors and, and you've, you've identified uh, employers obviously have the most frequent touch points with employees. They are probably the most trusted party as well, given, given the nature of the employee-employer relationship. What can industry and employers in tandem do then? Is it a case of, you touched on complexity, is it a case of removing jargon, speaking to people in plain terms that they'll understand and combining that with the education and financial literacy piece, which you alluded to earlier as well? Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of communications, I think there's an awful lot that we can do there. And that is an area that, you know, has been broached and we are starting to make some progress in that area. And I would take a recent example of the consultation on the simpler annual benefit statements, where we're really trying to reduce down the complexities and make it quite a consumer friendly document and easy to understand. You can look at it and within a couple of minutes, it provides you with that sort of key information that you need. That's a starting point, but there's a lot of other sorts of communications that go out at various stages throughout the pensions journey. And we need to look at all of those to remove a lot of that jargon. I think the medium that it's in plays a really important part. So a lot of communications still go out paper-based, but we are moving into you know the digital world. And it's probably fair to say pensions is been playing catch up in this area a little bit when you compare it to the likes of banking where we see banking apps now absolutely used every single day even more so than online banking and that's completely transformed the way that people interact and engage with their savings in, in their cash accounts 
From a pensions perspective, I'd like us to see moving more into that digital journey. I think if we don't start doing this more soon, then pension members are going to demand it anyway. Certainly younger cohorts, you know, use digital communications almost exclusively. They won't be entertaining anything paper-based. And even retired pension members now are becoming a lot more comfortable using electronic and digital forms of communication. And I think the beauty of being able to provide something through that sort of medium is you can embed it with a lot of other types of links as well. And it can take people quite seamlessly into other areas with online tools where they can play around with with their own financial scenarios to create outcomes and develop a better understanding and expectation of what their own retirements are likely to look like. It's really impossible to replicate that sort of information in a static paper document. So I'd really like us to see movement there. In terms of the employer, then we do see quite significant different levels of support that employers provide their employees. I think on a general level, then employers are quite paternalistic and they want to do more for their employees and they believe that they do have a part to play in the financial well-being of their employees as well and we do see that translate through with some employers you know having really good well-being programs for their employees and in terms of retirement they'll be running seminars on an annual basis and they'll be providing one-to-one sessions with their employee benefit consultants and advisors and getting the pension provider for their workplace scheme in to talk about retirement as well. But we also have right at the other end of the scale, employees who do absolutely nothing for their employees. Some of this will be down to sort of financial resource and time. And it's generally the larger employees who have the greater resource and time who who actually provide these better wellbeing programs. It's not exclusively linked to those employers, but as a general trend, that's what we tend to see. Just to go back to your technology point, Renny, you're talking about gamification and you know using technology and innovation and apps specifically to speak to and hopefully engage younger generations that are used to operating with their mobile phone to do everything through that medium. Specifically on the pensions dashboard, I'd be really keen to get your views there. Do you think that this has the potential, should it ever get over the line, does it have the potential to be this transformative tool in building awareness, trust, access and engagement? Yeah, there is a certain amount of scepticism out there about will the dashboard actually ever appear as an operational tool for people. I very much hope it does and I think it will be something that will be launched. 23 is the year that that's proposed. So look forward to seeing that that coming into the pensions landscape. In terms of actually what, what it can do, I think some people have some very high expectations of what the dashboard will be able to do for people. We need to sort of go back to basics to start with and think what was the original intention for the pensions dashboard. And one of the fundamental points was that this was supposed to reconnect people with lost pots, forgotten pots, and actually show an individual exactly what their full pension entitlements are. And so that's, you know, a fundamental principle of what the dashboard has to do. I think once we can get to a position where we actually have that and we have participation from all those pension schemes actually linking into the dashboard, we can then start to consider what is that meaningful information that individuals want to see and need in order to start thinking about what decisions they're going to make with that. One of the the key things here is I think we're going to be providing all of this information to individuals. For many of these, 
this will be the first time they've seen this information and will no doubt be a bit of a surprise when they see a, the total value of their collective entitlements. It might be a nice surprise, it might be a shocker. Don't quite know, you know, it depends. But either way, this would prompt the need for them. To, they're going to say, what do I need to do? So we can't, as an industry, just provide consumers with all this information and then not provide them with an effective support framework to help them make decisions on what to do with this information. Like I said, we've got maps. We know about 8% of people take regulated advice. It's a quite a low take up for maps. Guidance at retirement around sort of 11% with the stronger nudge it's looked at. So that's an awful lot of people who actually aren't going to have any support at all. And certainly for people who are under 50 as well, they will want to know, am I making the right levels of savings now to get a good outcome in my retirement? There's nothing really available for them. They will typically go to their pension provider and ask them, what do I need to do? And at the moment, we have this real problem that exists defining what the boundary is between guidance and advice. It's a real blur. Even FCA, I think, have, have said in the past, it's impossible to define. And because of this, providers are actually erring very much on the side of caution. They're, they're, they're very concerned that they may be straying into the advice territory by helping their members when they contact them. And so they're not actually going as far to provide support as they perhaps could do. So what we really need now to support the rollout of the dashboard is we need that definition of exactly what guidance is. To make that meaningful, we also need pension providers to be able to provide guidance with an element of personalisation to it as well, because that's what people really need. Just providing with information, which perhaps you could just get from Google, isn't going to be enough. They do value, and research will show this, that an element of personalisation is very much required as well. So if we can nail that side of it, and we have the dashboard as well, then the two things together will be very powerful in helping to promote engagement and helping people make better informed decisions. Right. And we've talked about cautious optimism around the dashboard as a potential game changer. Now, another policy or development, I suppose, that has made some good progress in building involvement, if not engagement, has been auto-enrolment. But there's a lot of misconceptions around, right? So what are the shortcomings around auto-enrolment and where do we need to go from here? Is it a case of minimum contributions being increased? If so, what's the right level? Let's just start by saying, you know, auto-enrolment has been a really great success in getting, uh, you know, millions of people now saving into workplace pension scheme who weren't before 2012 when it was introduced. But wouldn't it be an absolutely massive shame if we looked back in 20, 30 years and sort of said, yeah, you know, it was a great idea, had really good potential, never fulfilled it though. You know, we can't rest on our laurels and we need to be starting to think about what the next steps are for auto-enrolment. And the reason we need to start thinking about that now is these sort of things and changes do take a long time to implement. You know, from a political perspective, they have to go in through consultation, they have to then go into legislation. It goes through that whole political process, which can take several years. On top of that as well, you know, employees and employers are going to need enough time to prepare for these changes as well. Some of these changes we're thinking about are going to result in higher levels of contributions. So that's going to impact on the finances of both employees and employers going forward. So they need that certainty that it's going to happen and they need enough lead time to allow them to actually make the preparations to accommodate those changes when it comes in. And we felt at Tizer and our members agreed that a 6% matched contribution would seem 
an appropriate way to reach that 12%. Currently, of course, we've got 5% for employees and 3% for employer. So we propose that from 2027, contributions were increased by half a percent per year for the first four years, just to the employer contribution. So you then reach the level of a 5% matched. And then for the last two years of that six year schedule, both employees and employers increase their contributions by half a percent a year to reach that 6% match, so a total of 12%. So you were looking at incorporating these changes and phasing it in over a period of time to recognise the financial challenges that exist for employees and employers, particularly in light of what we've recently seen in over the last sort of 18 months with the pandemic and not looking at bringing these in until 2027, which we would hope would be two years after the mid-2020 proposals are actually implemented. But even with that sort of timescale, we need to start having that dialogue with government now to start thinking about getting those changes discussed and agreed and placed into legislation ultimately. It strikes me, and obviously we're in the communications business, and it strikes me that comms element is going to be crucial here if we're to really take people on that savings journey. It's not just a case of changing policy, but also involving people and letting them know what changes are coming, having a plan so that they can adapt as auto-enrolment develops. Now, we are hosting a podcast in 2021, and I think it would be remiss of me not to mention the pandemic, which clearly has had a disruptive effect on many things, and certainly on people's financial well-being. There is also perhaps this potential moment of reset now that we're beginning to come out the other side of things. Is there anything, Rennie, that you'd like to add around how COVID-19 has impacted the savings landscape in particular? Well, at the moment, it appears that AE has been pretty resilient, actually. And if you look at opt-out rates over the past year or so, then they've remained relatively stable. Employee contributions did drop at the start of the pandemic, but then the following quarter, they rose back to previous levels again. Although I am seeing some research that's now coming out that's suggesting that it might have dropped for some people. And I think that's going to be the case. We are going to see new research coming out in future months that's going to tell us a little bit more For a good percentage of people, what we have found, if there's anything positive that can come out of this pandemic, and there's not a lot, let's be frank, but one thing perhaps is that for a certain group of people, it has actually generated good savings habits. So, you know, the the restrictions that people have had on their lifestyles that are unable to spend their monies on holidays, not being able to go out and spend it in restaurants and, and go out shopping down Oxford Street or wherever it may be. And those restrictions have actually meant for that a certain group of people that have now saved money and got more money in savings in the bank than they've ever had before. And I hope that for a good percentage of that group of people that they retain those good savings habits. That's a really positive thing, you know, but we've got to also think about what are these people going to do with that money now? So they've saved up this level of money. Hopefully they're going to continue saving this level of money. But we don't want them to stay in cash for the next 20, 30 years, because that's going to really reduce the, the real level of what they've saved. So box ticked, absolutely, at least from a short term perspective, getting people saving. The second box that we need to tick now is how do we actually get these people investing that savings into something more appropriate than just cash? Because that's not going to be a good deal for them in the long term. And that's something we need to figure out as an industry and government is how we can actually educate these people now to do good things with those savings. Our research has looked at 
the pensions, trust and engagement issue across all age groups. And clearly, not everybody's born equal. And younger cohorts probably have bit more of an uphill challenge than some of the previous generations, what with the decline of defined benefit pension schemes and so on. Is there anything that you'd like to add, Renny, on those intergenerational differences or challenges that lay ahead? You touched on the DB there and the decline of DB schemes. That is a significant thing to consider um, for, for younger cohorts. Public sector workers, absolutely great they're in their db schemes that's not going to disappear but yeah in the private sector then absolutely we've, we've seen a huge decline in db schemes in recent decades it actually i think it actually peaked back in the late 60s and has been gradually declining at a slow rate ever since but perhaps that rate has increased in the last decade or so and when you consider actually the sort of contributions that are being made to these schemes, then the average contribution to a DB scheme is over 25%. 19% of that's coming from the employer. The average contribution to a DC scheme of whole salary is just over 5%, with less than 3% coming from the employer. So you could already see the significant difference over five times the difference in the level of contribution that's been made to the DC versus DB. Now that's going to have a huge impact on outcomes at retirement. So for people who are just starting off on the DC journey, okay, we have got auto-enrolment coming, we have got auto-enrolment. So for a lot of people who are auto-enrolled, they might have started on their pensions journey very early on in their, in their working career. That's good. But we, unfortunately, many people do have this perception that the minimum level that's been set by government is the right level to be contributing at. So when they do get to retirement, they are going to unfortunately be a little bit disappointed with the outcomes that they get. So again, that comes back to providing support and guidance for these people so they get an understanding of this earlier. The other thing with DB uh, versus DC, of course, all the risks associated with pensions around investment risk, you know, outliving your pension funds, longevity risk. That's none of that happens, of course, with DB. That's that all rests with the employer and it shifts completely onto the employee or the individual with DC. So many people aren't aware of this. We do see certain generations. So Generation X, for instance, may have some residual DBs and some small DB balances but as we get younger cohorts coming through the likelihood of them having any sort of db wealth is if they're not in the public sector it's going to be slim to none really they've also got this other huge challenge of course of wanting to get in, on the property ladder and we're a nation who loves to own their own homes it's very different out in europe but in the uk it's very much home ownership and that's something that younger people aspire to Probably one of the first things that they're thinking about when you start full-time work is, I want to get a car, I want to get a property. Pension doesn't really figure into it. You can see the younger cohorts now, as they're coming into work, they really have got this dilemma of, do I save for a house? Do I put more money in for a pension if they're thinking around that? Do I save for a car? My salary's not going to cover all these things. Where's my priority? And so it just becomes an increasingly challenging area for younger generation to consider. Again, like I say, the beauty of auto-enrolment is they don't have to make that decision about pension. They're going to be automatically enrolled. They will have to make a decision if they want to opt out. And so that's great. If they're only on minimum contributions, though, you know, it's not going to be enough. But if they're trying to save for a house as well, you know, something has to give somewhere. It's interesting that you make the point about where pensions stack up in the personal finance pecking order, if that's the right phrase. And, and our research showed that 
in the media at least, pensions-related news stories were outnumbered by property-related news stories by three to one since 2015. So you can see that there is this preference for consumption of news around property, and that probably reflects public attitudes towards saving for property versus thinking about your pension. It's a much more longer-term thing and probably gets neglected as a result. But are there dangers associated with that? I mean, a lot of people probably think my house is my pension. Is there a danger in in going down that route and, and thinking along those lines? I know of people who it's worked for very, very well, where the bricks and mortar have been effective replacement for a pension plan. But yeah, we shouldn't really be looking at these two things separately. People should be having a pension plan, absolutely, you know, when they come to retire and having that pension wealth to rely on. I would say, though, that it is very, very useful to have some <laughs> property equity as well. And I think we're going to see this increasingly, actually. And we do see a raft of adverts on television around equity release. And at the moment, we've seen there's been a, quite a spike in, in the amount of people who have been using these products in recent years. For a lot of people, they're taking these out because they're leaving in early inheritances. Or they're wanting, trying to help their, you know, their, their grandkids get on the housing ladder. Some are using it obviously for their own benefits as well. But I think as we progress to more and more retirees having less DB, and relying on DC, we're going to see retirement wealth drop and people are going to need to rely on other sources of money in addition to their pensions to help fund their retirements. So I do expect to see an ongoing increase in the number of people who take out these later life lending products. And I would expect to see the reason for this shifting very much towards I need it for my own retirement and you know for our retirement I can't afford to give it to my kids or my grandkids I need this for myself so I think we're going to see the cascade of wealth currently in, in some cases or many cases flowing down to you know younger generations within the family I think we're going to see that dry up because people are going to need that equity to actually uh, fund their own retirements as we see a gradual decline in, in pension wealth um, over time. Well, Rennie, we've covered an awful lot of ground. I'm not sure if we've managed to solve the pensions puzzle, but hopefully we've come up with some steps along the way that the industry and individuals can take on board as they continue their journey towards retirement. I did want to thank you again for joining us today. And to our listeners, you've been listening to the Infinite Global podcast. For more information about Infinite Global, please visit www.infiniteglobal.com, where you can also download a full copy of the pensions report. Thank you.